Good afternoon. Welcome to the Eco News Report. I'm your host this week, Scott Greeson, Conservation Director with Friends of the Eel River. The Eco News Report is an exclusive feature of KHSU, brought to you by the North Coast Environmental Center, publisher of our regional environmental newspaper, the Eco News. And don't forget, you can find this show and other KHSU public affairs shows on the audio archives page at khsu.org. My guest today is my opposite number counterpart, executive director, new boss, Stephanie Tidwell, executive director at Friends of the Eel River. And we're going to be talking today about our fight at Friends of the Eel River with the North Coast Railroad Authority and how this is something of a microcosm, a window into the fight between state and federal law and the struggle in the Trump era to secure environmental protections at the state and local level in the face of a federal government that's actively hostile to environmental protection. So welcome to the studio, Steph. Thank you. And hello, everyone. I guess we ought to probably start with sort of where we are, how we got here. I was talking when we were talking about putting together this show about a thinking about it in terms of yesterday and today and tomorrow, you know, over the last 10 years, we've fought the uh, North Coast Railroad Authority now to something of a standstill, at least a standoff. But today we were down at the Rocky Gulch crossing where the railroad has actually fallen apart almost completely. There are just literally two rail lines hanging over the high tide this year's king tide. And we are facing some pretty serious challenges in the years ahead, it looks like. And the waters are still rising. It's just after 11.45 on Tuesday, the 2nd of January, and I'm standing next to the remnants of the NCRA line, the, the old Northwest Pacific line, where it crosses one of the creeks on the 101 safety corridor between Arcadia and Eureka. Rocky Gulch? Yeah, that makes sense. Rocky Creek. Yeah, that's Rocky Gulch. So we're just south of Bayside here. And this is actually a place where the rail lines completely deteriorated. Not just the ties, but the actual supporting material of the railroads actually been washed out here in some measure. We'll put some photos up on this. But this, to me, is a picture of sea level rise. You know, we're, we're here on a real calm day. No storm, but the water's quite high. And we are within, what, three feet, would you say, Steph, of the surface of Highway 101. So, in, you know, in important respects, the old rail line here functions as kind of the, the dike that protects the 101 corridor from storm surges. But here's a place where the infrastructures really just fail. What are you seeing, Steph? Well, let's talk about what king tides are and what makes this king tide significant compared to previous ones. This is the perigean neap tide, which means that it's the high tide of the early spring. But as I understand it, this is to do with the, the varying relationship between the Earth and the moon and the so-called supermoon they're having, the full moon, describes basically a moon that's a little bit bigger visual aspects. But what it really means is the moon's just a little bit closer. And because it's a little bit closer, it pulls a little bit more on the ocean. And so we get a little bit higher tides at this time of year. What's really useful about these king tides is that because they come every year, we can use them to get a fairly good index of of how sea level rise is actually affecting the coast here. You know, outside of models and you know storm surges, what what's actually happened? And it's pretty dramatic. It turns out what's actually happening. 
the water's um, you know well over the outlet of the culvert that normally drains Rocky Gulch going up. And there's been some good modeling to show the effects of rising sea levels on urban coastal areas that show good chunks of, of the San Francisco Bay Area being completely underwater. And we have a similar situation here in Humboldt County, too. Because with this being you know our highest king tide ever due to, to climate change and, and rising ocean levels, we're not that far off from beginning to see some pretty significant inundation of inhabited areas. Yeah, and I think this is, you know, this is the point that Alderaan and others have made is that, you know, basically the protections we've got right now for a lot of the low-lying areas around Humboldt Bay really depend on or on this stretch in between Arcata and Eureka. There's going to be a lot of territory that will be unprotected. I guess, you know, we want to talk a little bit, at least, about the railroad itself and why this section hasn't been maintained and repaired. This is a long, sad story, but here we are in 2018, and this line was last really used in 1996. The state went to the trouble of buying this line, making it public property, but then there's really been no economic reason to operate it and no real money to pay for rebuilding the line, dealing with the the millions of heavily creosote-soaked ties that support the line, or places like this where the line is failing and actually creating problems. This is part of why we've been challenging the NCRA to basically come up with a reason to exist and come up with an operations plan and come up with a game plan. And the agency has really failed to do that, even refused to do that. But here we are in 2018, and the line's not fixing itself, and the water keeps coming higher. And this is not just environmental impacts either. The unrealistic demands and visions that the NCRA holds have resulted in negative economic impact, you know, quadrupling the cost of the current Rails to Trails proposal around Eureka with the Rails to Trails. Yeah, it went up mandate. to $25 million. We, we basically paid an extra $25 million in an extra five years to get the trail built here between Arcadia and Beside it rather than on top of it. Yeah, and if we could have built on top of that rail footprint, it would have been a lot cheaper and a lot easier. And we'd probably have a bridge here instead of a hole in what used to be a rail line. And it's interesting because the water, even though we're, we're past the perigee, the, the, the peak of the king tide here in the bay, we're still seeing water coming in. It hasn't even reached yeah, its, its highest still point flowing yet. In. Yeah, you know, that's Mother Nature not conforming smoothly to our models. <laughs> What time have we got? It's like pretty close to noon here and the water's still flowing in. I'm, I'm just thinking about our victory at the California Supreme Court and how important that is for protecting waterways and, and keeping debris like this as far from our Eel River as possible. Yeah, I guess this is just a tiny, tiny piece of, you know, the hundreds of miles of rail line that we've got to deal with down to Willits. And, you know, here at the beginning of the new year, as we are taken the lessons learned from the past year and from our our understanding of how climate change is going to impact the world. What we're looking at here is, you know, the stark reality of the need for both mitigation and adaptation because these oceans are rising and a lot of our infrastructure is going to suffer because of that. And we need to be thinking smarter and further ahead about how we limit further damage and adapt to this changing world. Yeah, and as anybody who's listening can hear, you know, we're standing next to an empty, quiet rail line that hasn't been used in 30 years, really. But the traffic on 101 is 
continuing to increase every year. You know, there's uh, in the short term, as you're saying, stuff we need to mitigate and try to figure out how to protect this corridor. But in the long run, we're really looking at having to move it. Yeah, I guess the, the the beginning of it is where we are now. And I guess that starts with we won a pretty major case before the California Supreme Court last year. And why don't we talk about that? As, as we were just reading today, it made the top five list of environmental litigation in the courts in California this year. And Scott was actually at those hearings. So I, I think I'd prefer to have him tell you a little more about, about what has transpired to date with that. Yeah, that I was pretty gratified to see that we actually made the list of Professor Richard Frank's list of the California Supreme Court's most important environmental law decisions of 2017. Now, this list includes five cases. Ours is number two. And let me just run through real quickly the five cases. Lynch versus California Coastal Commission is a case where coastal landowners in San Diego County sued over a permit they'd been given to build a seawall. And the California Supreme Court said, well, you built the seawall under your permit so you don't get to sue over the terms. As Professor Frank writes... Over the past decade, the California Supreme Court's most significant environmental law decisions have often had to do with the California Environmental Quality Act, or CEQA. Now, our case, the Friends of the Eel River versus the North Coast Railroad Authority, which was part of a package of cases, Californians for Alternatives to Toxics had brought basically uh, a closely related case, and they were heard together raised a CEQA issue that the California Supreme Court hadn't looked at before, which is basically whether and in what circumstances CEQA is preempted by federal law. That is to say, when does federal law mean that CEQA doesn't apply? And in our case, we had challenged the North Coast Railroad Authority's claim that they were not required to follow CEQA in a situation where, one, they're a state agency, two, they're managing state property, the state-owned rail line, three, they'd gotten state money from the California Transportation Commission on the explicit condition they follow CEQA, four, they'd been given state money from the California Transportation Commission to actually do the CEQA work, and five, they'd actually done an environmental impact report, which we were challenging, and then they told the court, no, we don't have to follow CEQA. Now, the California Supreme Court decided that CEQA does apply to at least some publicly owned and operated railroad projects like ours. They did conclude that CEQA wouldn't apply to a private railroad in California, but that's not ours, so we're not so worried about that. This is a pretty big deal for us, but it doesn't actually finish the case. And so there's two things to say about that. One is we're now back at the district court facing this basic question of did the rail agency, the NCRA, actually follow CEQA? And if not, what do they have to do in terms of looking at the impacts of rebuilding a rail line through the Eel River Canyon? But they've also gone to the U.S. Supreme Court and filed what's called a petition of certiorari, asking the U.S. Supreme Court to review the case. 
And it's important to note the significance of this Hail Mary pass to the Supreme Court and that this is a pretty transparent effort by industry to undermine the basis of CEQA. Yeah. And, you know, they want a ruling that says essentially federal railroad law trumps, if you will, California environmental protections, period. And that, that's that been their position throughout this litigation. What's really interesting in the current era is, you know, the possibility that California really hangs on to a significant piece of its own power to review big projects, especially big projects like the high-speed rail train that is a much bigger political deal than the tiny little defunct railroad on the North Coast. And that's really where most of the attention has been on our case is what are the implications for high-speed rail? And does California get to continue to decide how it wants to do this or does federal power completely override any California decision-making? You know, the chance that the NCRA is actually going to get the U.S. Supreme Court to review the case is, we're guessing, somewhere between 5 and 15 percent. It's a relatively low probability, but it's still something we worry about a fair amount because, you know, it could – the chance of this Supreme Court coming up with a good environmental law ruling is pretty pretty low. We just – we would much prefer that the Supreme Court not hear the case. And the facts are in our favor, but that doesn't necessarily – mean too much with our federal administration and and courts right now. Well, and it just it doesn't matter that much with the Supreme Court as it's currently constituted. As an environmental lawyer, you know, I was trained in law school by really accomplished environmental law professors who basically, you know, their take on the Supreme Court is the conservatives want corporations to win. And the relative moderates are viewed as liberals on the Supreme Court want the government to win. And nowhere in there is anybody who's really looking for advocates like us to actually prevail over both the government and corporations. So it's just not a great place for our cases. Which once again brings us back to the importance of our California government, our governor's office, our courts, and our legislature in being the counterpoint to industry and the Trump administration's assault on our environment and environmental laws. And this is where it feels like we finally do have a real opening. Because as I said, you know, our case is now back before essentially the district court, the, the, the county courts, to look at that CEQA question. But meanwhile... The California Transportation Commission has gone has has demanded that the NCRA actually produce a workable business plan and explain how it's going to continue to operate in a way that is truly sustainable. And the the reason that the Transportation Commission has done this is that over the past years, the NCRA has basically functioned by selling off its existing assets, rail cars it owns, real estate it owns, easements it owns. And there's a limit to how much of that you can do. You can only sell off your furniture for so long before you have an empty house. 
the NCRA isn't making any money. In fact, it's losing a lot of money. And so the the Transportation Commission is saying basically, you know, you guys aren't functioning as a legitimate public agency if you're just going bankrupt and incidentally giving a lot of money to the private company that holds the lease on your rail line. Which is an important piece of the puzzle. Who benefits? You know, it's been clear from the start this has never been about transportation for humans. This is about an industrial freight line with, frankly, minimal prospects. So who does benefit from from this plan that they've continued to try to force upon us? If you're just tuning in, this is the Eco News Report. I'm Scott Greeson with Friends of the Eel River, and I'm talking today with Stephanie Tidwell, also with Friends of the Eel River. And we're talking mostly about the North Coast Railroad Authority and our longstanding case challenging the NCRA's refusal to follow California environmental law. But we're also trying to talk a little bit about how this case illuminates the intersection of federal and state protections, environmental law, attention to natural resources, period. So there's a real opening now, it looks like, to finally get the NCRA reformed. But the question you just asked, Stephanie, who benefits from its current operations is a really important one. And the short answer is the rail company, the Northwest Pacific Company, which is principally owned in part by Doug Bosco, who is its general counsel, former congressman from the North Coast, publisher of the Santa Rosa Press Democrat, and a major stakeholder, along with a guy named John Williams, who's said to be gravely ill, so probably not in the picture for very much longer. And the way that the NCRA has been set up to actually funnel public money to the Northwest Pacific Company is one of the key points we've been trying to get state regulators and the state legislature to understand. And now it looks like we finally are at a place where those regulators and the legislature are beginning to comprehend just what a mess we've got here and how unsustainable this situation is. Because we are now hearing not just from the California Transportation Commission, as we've mentioned, but from Senator Mark McGuire's office, that from their position, it makes no sense for the legislature to continue to invest money in the operations of the NCRA. And in fact, what McGuire's office is calling for is a really hard look at what's going to happen with the rail line on the north end, which is what we're mostly concerned about. In the Eel River Canyon, north of Willits, here around Humboldt Bay. And very interestingly, the North Coast Railroad Authority's board has basically invited discussions around rail banking in the Eel River Canyon. And this is a real 180 from the NCRA's previous position, which was basically refusing the opportunity for rail banking. And, you know, if the NCRA had been willing to look at rail banking 15 years ago for the Eel River Canyon, we might already have a trail through there. And maybe you can explain a little more about what rail banking is. Ah, rail banking is basically a method that Congress set up to 
protect a publicly owned right-of-way, a railroad right-of-way, as a public asset. And the reason to do that is that if you think about that long strip of land underneath a rail line, a lot of it is going to be held privately by a rail line as a strip, a little, you know, individual little parcel of land. But a lot of it is also going to be held as easements, as the right to cross over a piece of land. And if you want to get, you want to take a a rail line that isn't making money and get rid of it, you have to go to the federal regulators, who are now the Surface Transportation Board, and basically say, we want to abandon this line. And if you do that, if you abandon a, a federal a railroad line, that whole line has to be taken apart, has to be cleaned up, among other things. But legally speaking, that easement, that right to cross other people's property goes away completely once that rail line is abandoned. And so you'll never get that public right-of-way reestablished there. It's Imagine just erasing a road from the map, erasing a rail line from that. So what Congress did with the rail banking law was basically create a method to use a rail line for another purpose, explicitly for, as a trail is the main idea, unless and until there's a new use for it as a rail line. And there have actually been some situations in the Northeast where rail lines were rail banked, turned into trails, and then turned back into light rail when there was a use for them again. But the basic reason that Congress did this is that the U.S. has this massive oversupply, in a way, of old freight railroads that were built when Basically, the railroad barons were competing with each other to build rail lines all over the country. And they built a lot of duplicative parallel lines, unnecessary lines that don't necessarily make money. Well, one of the areas where this is this idea is so exciting to people is that this is generally the path forward to a rails-to-trails model where we can expand our outdoor recreation opportunities with minimal impact on resources, which is related to but very different to what we were looking at today when we were out looking at the King Tides, which is a rails with trails, where the company refused to cede that right. And so therefore, massive expense, like 20 million, 25 million additional dollars. Yeah, our best guess is is an extra $25 million and an extra five years to build the trail between Arcata and Eureka on that existing right-of-way because the NWP Co., that rail company, insisted that the only way they would allow that to happen would be so-called rails with trails, which means basically that the public had to bear the expense not only of building the trail, but also of setting up the rail as well. And we love this trail. Don't get us wrong. I'm excited to have it here, but the reality is... We'd rather have it done. Right. And we'd like to see a trail happen in the Yellow River Canyon, but we're not really interested in seeing what the NCRA board seems to think they're looking for, which is public financing to rebuild a non-functional freight line 
in order to build a trail. That's just not going to happen. That doesn't work. Yeah. You know, what what could work there is putting in a trail in order to preserve that public right-of-way. Having said that, I think we also need to say that, you know, we still need to take a good hard look at what it's going to cost, how it's going to happen, because that country is really steep. It's really erosive. The existing NCRA line has pretty significant fish passage issues that are starting to be addressed. Caltrout and company have dug up and, you know, started to deal with a lot of the places where the rail line actually blocked fish passage. But, you know, we want to see those problems corrected. We need to see the toxics the line created dealt with. And, you know, to really get the the kind of world-class recreational resource that could be there is not going to be a cheap and easy thing. It's going to take real work. Looking back on the last almost two decades now of fighting the NCRA and their plan to rebuild a, a crumbling and ecologically destructive railroad through the Old River Canyon, you know, here we are in a new year. We've had some significant wins and progress made in the next year. So I'd like to spend just a few moments talking about what this is practically going to look like in in the coming year, in 2018, in order to move us towards a more sustainable travel management plan for the region? Well, I think the first thing we're really going to see, practically speaking, is hearings before the California Transportation Commission at the end of January and the beginning of February, where we are going to see specific questions asked of the NCRA, and we're going to get more information about their current business operations and and status. But I expect that set of hearings to feed almost directly into legislative oversight. And we are finally, as I suggested, hearing from the legislature a real willingness to re-examine the acts of the legislature that first took on the NCRA as a state asset. And it's, you know, there's some really challenging pieces to this. What we're talking about here is finally getting the state to confront the liability, the very substantial financial liability that's there in the line. And, you know, the deal all along was that the state would buy this line, but didn't want to take on that liability. And to fix these problems, we've got to deal with that liability. That is the core of our our concerns is, is, you know, the collective environmental liability. Having said all that, it does seem like we're now getting close to a place where that could happen. What is not at all clear yet is how we can best hope to reconfigure the agency itself. What do we do with the NCRA? It's clear to me that the NCRA has been essentially a creature of the rail interest of the NWP Co. of Doug Bosco and his buddies, and that the the local political oversight by county supervisors who are members of the NCRA's board has failed almost entirely to to actually keep the agency on the tracks, if you will. But it's not not at all clear what we do. Do we break it into different units? Do we give the rail line to the counties? You know, who's going to manage it in the long run? Who's going to manage a trail in the Yorba Canyon? I'm not really sure about that. I'm quite certain that the existing NCRA should have no part of that. 
yeah, some somebody with an agency with a resource conservation mandate would would need to become the responsible party for that, which again brings us back to the troubling developments at the federal level and engagement with the state of California as the, the counterbalance to the right. deeply disturbing things that are happening nationally. Right. Well, this has been the Eco News Report. My name's Scott Greason. I'm the conservation director with Friends of the Eel River, and I'm your host for the past half hour. I've been speaking with Stephanie Tidwell, the executive director of Friends of the Eel River. If you have questions or comments about this program, please call KHSU's listener comment line at 826-6089. You can hear this broadcast again in the archive programs page of the station's website at khsu.org. The Eco News Report is produced at Humboldt State University in cooperation with the North Coast Environmental Center. Tune in again next week, the same time, for the Eco News Report. <laughs>